ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Anna Funder is my guest on Conversations today. Anna's latest book is called Wifedom and it tells the story of an Englishwoman, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, and her marriage to the writer George Orwell. Anna began writing this book, which is a mix of biography and fiction and polemic, out of a very personal place. She was overwhelmed and exhausted and, frankly, not a little pissed off by aspects of her own life, the endless responsibilities and demands of being a wife and mother. And Anna was uncomfortable to discover the similarities between her own modern marriage and that of the Orwells back in the 1930s. I spoke with Anna Funder at the Byron Writers Festival. Anna, I want you to tell me about the, the particular species of exhaustion that you were suffering from in the summer of 2017 and that got you started, in a way, on this book. Yes, I, I needed a word for it, so I think of it as suffering a motherload of wifedom. <laughs> I had to call it something, but really, you know, I'm a privileged white, at that point, perimenopausal, now postmenopausal woman, in a happy marriage and a kind of lucky life. But we had been living in the States and we came back to Australia and my husband got this big job that needed kind of big backroom support, I suppose. So coming back to Australia, our lives divided even more sharply into these super traditional roles that I sort of hadn't noticed that we'd been in, even though we had been in those. And yet was kind of getting kids back to school, three different schools, all the emails seemed to come to me. I needed to remember, you know, the t-shirt for tie-dye and the, you know, orthodontics and the dog vet appointment and all of these things. And then I also had to rewrite a screenplay for All That I Am uh, on an urgent basis right at that minute. So then I had to put on another woman to do some of the wifedom for me, who was a young medical student. She was fantastic and super nice and she put the kids in a car to take them to the beach and promptly the car got totaled on New South Head Road and everyone was fine. But... um, It was just, and I was trying to sort of rewrite scene by scene this thing. So I just really thought, this is bad. Uh, And and how did I end up here? And then I went, I did the mistaken thing of going shopping in the local mall near me and then finding myself behind this massive trolley, dragging a depressed French exchange student through the mall, (laughs) thinking, something's gone wrong with my life. (laughs) And ended up turning to Orwell instead of, like, yoga or meditation. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that that feeling has driven, has driven other women, like, to online shopping or, or book festivals or solo weekends away, but for you it was George Orwell. Why, why did you pick up him? Well, I literally, on that day, went to the second-hand bookshop near the mall, which I still can't escape from, I'm there all the time, and found this first edition copy of Orwell's Collected Journalism and Essays from 1968, And I opened it up and the pages were sort of dark and fragile and smelt like the past in that way that old books that have been owned by someone else are are sort of exciting. And I saw that these books had been Peter Corris's, who was a local author near where I live as well. 
And I thought, this is, you know, this is serendipity. It must mean something. So I grabbed Orwell's essays in journalism, dumped the groceries at home, took the depressed French exchange student to the Dawn Fraser Baths and thought, well, he can swim. The, the medical student can deal with a car crash. <laughs> I can read my way out of this because Orwell is so good at uh, how power works from an underdog's point of view and who it works on. And I thought he would be able to help me until I found that he had an underdog rather like me. And then, <laughs> and then my view changed. So you turned to Orwell in, in an effort to help liberate yourself from the mother load of wifedom, as you put it. How was it that you turned instead to his wife? Where did she first appear in, in your mind or in those pages of his? Yes, so I did what my kids refer to me as TITF, taking it too far. <laughs> and I read my way through these essays in journalism and then I read with great pleasure. You know, he's such a... He's so self-deprecating and so apparently honest and funny. Then I reread Animal Farm and 1984 and then I read the six bi major biographies of Orwell, all written by men, also with great admiration and pleasure. And when I'd finished that, I wasn't cured. <laughs> and so I kept going. And I, there was, um, in 2005, six letters from Orwell's first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, were discovered. And that's after all of these biographies had been written. And these letters are from Eileen. They start six months after she married Orwell in 1936. And they go through to the end of the marriage in 1945. And the first of them reads, she and Orwell have been living in a tiny, decrepit, 300-year-old cottage since the wedding at Wallington, a village 30 miles out of London. And she has been there doing all of the housework and gardening work and provisioning him and so on. And then they come in November to visit his parents at Southwold. And that's when she can draw breath and write to her best friend. And she writes to her, Dear Nora, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write to you, but we have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at this letter and I just thought... You are hilarious. <laughs> you are fantastic. Why do I have no sense of you after having been on this Orwell jag and devouring all these biographies? Why do you want to kill him, even in jest? And what is it about these first months of wifedom where you've had to get used to perhaps some kind of motherload of your own? This is a woman who I found took the word obey out of her wedding vows in what I think of as the first act of the radical editing genius that would define her marriage. So she doesn't want to obey, but she's having to get used to this. And I turned back to the biographies because I thought, I must have missed something here, like this whole person <laughs> who was the wife, as some of them did say, of his great creative period. And I go back and I look in the biographies to see what was going on for him in these newlywed months in this tiny cottage with no electricity, uh, one cold tap, <laughs> an outdoor loo on a cesspit and so on. And I read, uh, 
conditions were idyllic for Orwell. <laughs> These were the happiest months of his life. And I just thought, well, you know what? Between the conditions that were idyllic for him that are spoken of as if they have no one making them, and the woman who was making those conditions, maybe there's room for a book. So this woman, Eileen, that you are uh, so taken with by the voice, the person, the spirit you find in these letters that she'd been writing to her best friend, tell me more about her before Orwell came on the scene. Where had she met this great friend, Nora? So Eileen and Nora uh, read English together at Oxford in the early 1920s. So just at the very beginning of the time when women were able to have degrees conferred on them. So they'd been able to study but without ever taking a degree at Oxford before. So Eileen had been a brilliant student at her high school. She was head girl. She was ducks and she got a scholarship to St Hugh's. And she started there, I think, in 22. And Nora was also reading English. And they were apparently the kind of, quote-unquote, liveliest girls in the college. I don't know what exactly <laughs> that means. <laughs> Um, they were just very firm friends there. And she did Eileen want to be a writer? She was studying English. Was her aspiration at the time, as you can tell, to, to be a writer herself? Um, it was never declared, not in anything that I have found. So she was studying under Tolkien. Um, her contemporaries included Stephen Spender. And um, she wrote a lot of poetry, loved poetry and Shakespeare um, so I imagine, you know, I would never have, in fact, never did declare any kind of intention like that either. It seemed in my generation... I mean, I know everyone is a writer now, but in my generation, we didn't declare it. It would have seemed like an act of um, hubris and, you know, I would have thought it, it might have jinxed me if I'd ever declared that. And so I imagine that she didn't declare it either, but that is entirely me imagining it. She did write a poem before she met Orwell in, uh, in 1934 for the anniversary of her school, and it was called End of the Century 1984. Hmm. And it projected a dystopian future of telepathy and mind control. Uh, so she was uh, extremely clever, extremely nice woman. Everyone who met her thought... She was incredibly nice, although her friend Lydia thought she had a sharp tongue. Um, what was her nickname? Her nickname was Pig. <laughs> For reasons nobody really knows, she was a very waif-like kind of tall, thin person with um, black hair, blue eyes, pale skin. She was someone people really liked her enormously. When they met her, one of her friends later, Lettuce Cooper, said, you know, when we first met her, we thought she was affected because it took her so long. We would ask her a question, it took her so long to respond to us. But then we realised that what was going on was that she was, she looked at other people as if they were glass. What she saw was their feelings. Mm. So she's one of those people who's an extraordinary listener and can imagine herself into your point of view and talk to you having understood that. But also she was very brave. So she worked in lots of so-called secretarial jobs 
as well as writing feature articles in the nine years between graduating and meeting Orwell. And one of those jobs was for a woman who was running a business agency in London. Eileen rewrote an, a Russian emigre's thesis um, so that the people in the office thought she should have actually got the PhD and not him. But she also, the boss was a bully and she organised a walkout of the other people in that office, um, what her friends called a revolt of the oppressed. So you can see that there's a, this is a woman who doesn't suffer fools or tyrants, who will take action against them uh, and who has the imagination to see other people, as her friends said, including herself and George, like characters in a book. Mm. She was living, you know, as you're describing it, a, a fairly unusually independent life for a woman of, of that time. Was she close with her family? Yes, she was extremely close. So Orwell described himself as coming from the lower upper middle class. <laughs> um, by, by which he meant upper middle class, but without the money to really be it. And he had had a scholarship to Eton, but then the family hadn't had enough money to send him to university. So he hadn't been to university at all. He went to be a policeman in Burma instead. She came from a family that was sort of slightly better off. And she had an older brother who was a very eminent lung and thoracic surgeon who had trained in Berlin and worked in Sudan, who was married to another doctor. And she was very close to him. His name was also Eric. So how did Eileen and George first meet one another? Eileen was studying for a master's in psychology at UCL in London. Um, and she, a lot of her friends were, I mean, we think about those times and we tend to assume that they were more traditional automatically or something like that. But she comes from this upper middle class milieu where the women were often, they would get married, but they would also divorce. She had quite a lot of divorced friends and she was studying for this MA in psychology, which meant that many of her friends subsequently became quite well-known analysts or translators or writers. So there's quite a lot of evidence from her friends about her. One of those people was a woman called uh, Lydia Jackson, who was Russian and had married and divorced uh, Cambridge Don. And she was also studying for this MA in psychology. And she and Eileen turn up at another fellow student, another divorced emigre called Rosalind, who was one of Orwell's flatmates in a flat in Hampstead set up for him by one of his ex-girlfriends, Mabel Fierce. So there's a lot of, lot of women in this story. Um, and they turn up at this party and Orwell is there leaning on the mantelpiece with his friend Richard Rees, who was a kind of um, socialist aristocrat, if you can imagine that. And they walk in and Lydia, who is Russian, thinks, oh, my God, who are these moth-eaten men? <laughs> um, Orwell basically falls in love with Eileen at first sight at this party. She says afterwards, oh, I was behaving my worst, quite drunk, very rowdy. <laughs> um, but he walked Eileen and Lydia to the bus stop near Hampstead Heath afterwards and he came back and helped Rosalind collect glasses and ashtrays and things after this party and said to her, his flatmate, um, that is the woman I want to marry. 
And it was such an unusual thing for Orwell to say, so direct and so emotional and so sudden, that she remembered that for the rest of her life and told the biographers about it 30, 40 years later. Eileen took quite a lot longer to come round to the idea of marrying him. Uh, he proposed three weeks later and she, she said to Lydia, who was very earnest and kind of, I think, in love with Eileen herself, and she said to Lydia, you know, basically one of those moth-eaten men asked me to marry him. <laughs> and Lydia was absolutely horrified. And she said, oh, my God, what are you going to do? And Eileen, I think in this kind of whimsical, kind of teasing way, said to Lydia, I don't know, I'm 29. And I said to myself, if I'm not married by the time I'm 30, I'll just accept the first proposal that comes along. <laughs> So Lydia's kind of apoplectic about this. <laughs> and Lydia, as it turns out, knew both of them very intimately for the whole marriage and wrote about it afterwards. So she's someone whose account is enormously important to mine, but who much of her account uh, is also left out of these biographies I was, I was looking at. So it was very interesting to go back to her as a source. She went and stayed with with Orwell and Eileen when they were living in this tiny little ancient cottage with no running water that you were describing earlier. What were Eileen's day-to-day responsibilities in, in that house? So this is, I suppose, the, the wifedom she's getting used to in the first months of her marriage. She, the first months of the marriage, some sort of negotiation is going on about whether she's going to finish the degree. She's just got... Um, the thesis to do, but it involves doing research on a sample of school children who are going to be hard to find in this tiny village where there's no school. All the school children go to the neighbouring village. Lydia also thought that some of Eileen's subjects in her psychology degree made Orwell nervous. And she does give up this degree in order to do the work in the cottage. The biographers, as well as describing his idyll, at this place, say he had gone up to the house before they got married and then they're married in the local church. And the biographers say things like, he waited till Eileen arrived to open the shop. The front room of the cottage had been a shop in the village until it was closed because the villagers all shopped at the better shops in the neighbouring village. But he thought he would reopen it and kind of get a few bob from this shop, but he had waited till she got there to open it, which meant that she was running this shop. She was planting things in the garden. She was cooking three meals a day. At first, he wanted to dress for dinner (laughs) in this cottage, and she just said to him, that's ridiculous. They were given a pot of marmalade for the wedding by one of the local people, and she popped it on the um, breakfast table, and he thought that was outrageous and it needed to be decanted. So he was setting some ground rules about how he felt that he should live and how they should both perhaps suffer for his art, I think. Um, Yeah, so he wrote to a girlfriend, uh, a woman called Brenda Salkeld, who he had been... He had many, many girlfriends before his wedding, uh, not including many uh, prostitutes, encounters with prostitutes in Burma and in Paris and possibly in London. And one of the women that he was in love with his whole life, who I think um, possibly wisely refused to sleep with him her whole life, she lived till she was 101, he, he, he didn't stop trying. He, um, he wrote to her the day after the wedding and said, we were 
married in the Anglican church with the correct service, although the vicar left out obey. <laughs> so I noticed that and I thought, he can't credit her with leaving out obey. So there's sort of erasures that I was interested in bringing her back to life. I got permission to use these six really wonderful letters to her best friend and I could write these scenes where she's at the cottage cooking, cleaning out the cesspit, he's off with another woman, he's made sure she knows that that's what he's doing and so on. I can be in her mind at the same time as I can then in a non-fiction narrative show these sly ways that Orwell and then the biographers erase her from the life that they lived and the work that they made. I I love that. You know, whenever people live over 100, they're always asked, like, what's the secret of your long life? And this woman could have answered, not sleeping with George Orwell. (laughs) Which I think might be... If I make it to 100, that's what I'm going to say too. So the fact that that Eileen was doing all of the day-to-day work, hard, really hard physical labour in this remote cottage, allowed George Orwell, of course, to write. And I wonder if, you know, what your reflections are, Anna, as a writer, what does the freedom to write sort of mean existentially for someone who is a writer? Like, what was the gift of that that seems more than just one of time or labour? There was something psychological or existential that that allowed him. Yes. I should um, also say that Orwell was obsessed with goats and he had tuberculosis most of his life and I think he also thought that goat milk was um, possibly good for him. And they had two goats and a whole lot of chickens, which was part of her responsibility at the cottage. And um, they used to walk the goats on leads through the village in the afternoons, (laughs) a scene I would have loved to have seen. But Eileen gave the goats names and she called one of them after his aunt, Nellie, who came and overstayed her welcome in those newlywed months. So they had a goat called Nellie after the aunt and then they had another one called Mabel, which was either after an ex-girlfriend of Orwell's Mabel Feards or after his mother, Ida Mabel. And then she named all the chickens and she thought at that time she might write a book about the animals on the farm. But she didn't have time because she didn't... uh, As she said, there's barely 25 minutes between packing up one meal and preparing the next. But the issue of gifting time to a writer... I mean, I live in a kind of zone of deep irony about this because, of course, my husband gifts me this time too, you know, in the way that we work it out. As he says to me, you know, well, you couldn't have written this book without me. And he's totally right about that. And he's also taken rather hopefully uh, to saying things like, patriarchy, it was good while it lasted. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at this from the point of view of a writer and a wife, which is a kind of contradictory thing. But I think at one level, I mean, I describe writers as being prone to falling into our own empty centres, you know. I mean, we work alone for long hours doing something that we essentially, if it's really creative or new, don't know how to do by definition. So that's a difficult place to live your life for six or eight hours a day. And I think 
if we look at the image of male genius in the 20th century, whether it's a Picasso or it's Hemingway or whoever it is, the great male writers, I can imagine that in order to think of yourself as central to the culture and as intact and important enough to have something really valid to say, it helps to think about yourself as a star. And if you're going to be a star, if you've got someone in your orbit, that makes you the nucleus. And I think part of this psychological effort of Eileen's is she is a much better educated when she meets Orwell, a better writer, a better editor, and more sophisticated about other human beings than he. And for him to have her essentially working for him and also psychologically becoming more and more under his control is a boost to the to the man and possibly in a weird way that's uncomfortable for me to examine as well to the writing ego. So in the first letter that she writes, the very first letter, she's so prescient about this to Nora. She says a couple of things. She says, uh, the family, Orwell's family, on the whole are interesting. And I think on my side, so there's already sides being taken. In fact, on the wedding day, his mother took me aside and said, I'd be a brave girl if I knew what I was in for. <laughs> and the sister said, well, obviously she doesn't know what she's in for or she wouldn't be here. <laughs> and then Eileen says, um, but what they haven't understood is that I am very like Eric in temperament, which is an asset once one has accepted the fact. Mm. So she sees this commonality which was interesting to me. And then the final bit of that essay, she says, I have tried to come and see you, Nora's living in Bristol, twice. Uh, but if I leave when he has no notice, he always gets something and I have to come back. And if he has noticed that I'm going, he gets something before I can leave. So he had very bad lungs, TB, most of his life. But she is saying to Nora... I can see that he is using this disease to keep me here and I haven't even been married six months. So she's, in, the, in the act of saying that to your friend, I think you're saying, I see it, therefore I think I can handle it, but also I'm telling you this in case I can't. Broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Not long after they were married, Orwell decided to join the fight against fascism in Spain. And then in early 1937, Eileen managed to get there as well, to go off to, to Spain where civil war was raging. What was fueling her enthusiasm to go, do you think? Um, when she, she goes, 
I read Homage to Catalonia as a teenager and absolutely loved it. Orwell is self-deprecating. You know, he'll tell you he's a terrible shot. He'll tell you he's got, like everybody else in the trenches, lice crawling down the inseam of his trousers and all over his testicles. And he's just, he sort of, his honesty really cleaves you to him. But you can read that book a couple of times, as I did, and not realise that Eileen is there. So... For me, that was an alert about some of these mechanisms of erasure that are going on in his work, and that's before I even looked at the biographers. Um, she does. She goes to Spain and she works for the head office, headquarters of the International Labour Party, which is affiliated with the PUM. And Orwell is off in the trenches of Aragon, bored out of his mind, literally sticking his head above the parapet, trying to find a bullet to hit him. <laughs> eventually successfully because he's so bored and she's at the epicenter of operations in Barcelona she is dealing with supply everything that the men need in the trenches their communications back and forward all their letters from the trench to home uh, she has her sister-in-law a doctor drive a car full of medical supplies from London to Barcelona uh, she lends the leader of the party, John McNair, money, quite a lot of money, because he didn't have any, the whole party was broke. And she's writing propaganda for the party with an um, economist, an American called Charles Orr, who left a record of her work there saying, compared to all of the other spies, chances, grifters, uh, wannabe revolutionaries who drifted through our office, Eileen was a superior person something no biographer uses. So the biographies say, for instance, Eileen, who wasn't political at all, went to Barcelona simply to be nearer to her husband. <laughs> she took up a volunteer post, uh, and while she was there, she was able to procure for him cigars, chocolate, margarine, and other treats and send them to the front. Full stop. That's all you would know about what she did there. So kind of reverse engineering homage to Catalonia and going into the biographers and all their sources and seeing everything that they left out in order to leave her out was absolutely fascinating to me. So did she share that political commitment that Orwell's so known for? She was there to fight fascism. Well, Eileen said of Orwell that he had a remarkable political simplicity. <laughs> Something that the biographer Sir Bernard Crick just changed because it was obviously unpalatable to him. And he said that Eileen said, quote, he had a remarkable political sympathy. <laughs> um, I think she had very good instincts about people and politics. And um, she was there because she wanted to be there. She did visit him at the front, but there's a rather wonderful picture of her kneeling behind a machine gun with the other men in the trench and Orwell standing behind. She spent three days at the front, and rather unusually and excitingly, they came under fascist fire while she was there. And she wrote later to someone else, uh, I've just, you know, I've just visited the trenches and we came under fascist fire. Um, I think I've never enjoyed anything more. <laughs> and I think that that is possibly a reflection on life at the cottage. <laughs> 
she and other members of, of the left group that she was working with in Barcelona became caught up in this internal battle between Stalinists and Trotskyists that I guess Orwell reimagines uh, with her help, I suppose, in Animal Farm later. But at the time, what did it mean for her life in Barcelona? Was she being spied on? And, and if so, would she have been aware of that? Yes. So while he's off in the trench writing notes on the back of envelopes and scraps of paper and toilet paper and he's sending those back to her and she's typing them into one long manuscript that will be the basis for Homage to Catalonia. Um, She is at this epicentre of spying and she knew that there were spies in her office. Uh, There was an American spy, a British spy, and they were working for Stalin. She didn't know exactly who they were, but she knew that there would have been some. And it's possible now to know who they are. And also one of them, while Eileen and the others were off at lunch, basically over the course of a week took every bit of information and file that they had in that office around to the Stalinist headquarters and had it copied and brought it back. Um, Stalin didn't want any left-wing revolution in Europe to succeed that he wasn't controlling. So it looked as if he and communist forces backed by him were fighting against the fascists on the side of these little local left-wing parties. But actually he was planning a rout that came in May, June 37, when he gave the order to liquidate in his words, or eliminate these other left-wing forces, which included all the people in Eileen's office. People were rounded up off the streets, killed, foreigners, non-combatants, women, wives, rounded up and put into all these prisons and street fighting breaks out outside the hotel where she's living. And her office was 100 metres down the street on the Ramblas, the wonderful avenue in, in Barcelona. I spent a long time writing the Spanish section of this book, which is about 80 pages, I think. So long that Craig and I be on holiday with the kids, like different seasons of the year, summer holiday at the beach, winter holiday in the snow, wherever we would be. And Craig would open the door and say to me, you still in Spain? (laughs) And I'd say yes. And I was really embarrassed about it. I mean, I spent longer in Spain than Eileen and Orwell spent in Spain, (laughs) just trying to find her. And right at the end of this process, I sort of twigged very late in the day that Orwell is now out of copyright. So on Gutenberg.com, you can pull up all his work. And so after spending a very long time in Spain, I put into the search term my wife on homage to Catalonia. And my wife comes up 37 times. But then I realised not once does he use her name. And if you don't name someone, they cannot come alive on the page. They cannot be a character or have any agency. They cannot be the woman who told you what was happening, visited you at the front, visited you again when you got shot at the front. Orwell spends two and a half thousand words describing his bullet wound and being sh- and being shunted about, not just the wound, being shunted about um, in these terrible field hospitals without saying that she immediately went to him at the front and organised all that care. And at the end, during the Stalinist route, she risks her life to save him, actually kind of twice, uh, in a way that the biographers also ignore. Uh, they say she went into this police prefecture from which 
the police who had raided her room while she was in it in a dawn raid had been sent before, Spanish police under Stalinist control. And the biographers say things like, after the visas had been obtained. So this passive voice erases the woman who risks her life to do this and get him out of Spain. But Stalin, ironically, after she gets them out of Spain onto this train, Stalin, that day that they are arriving by train back in the UK, issued, his agents issued an arrest warrant for both of them, and he could see her perfectly clearly, who had worked in the office, who are, you know, alleged Trotskyites, blah, blah, blah. So Orwell can't name his wife, but Stalin can name her as a target perfectly clearly. With Eileen's very active assistance, the couple make it safely back to England. But of course, not long after that, war breaks out, the Second World War breaks out, and they were completely broke as a couple. What was Eileen doing to to bring money in to support them? Yes, you wouldn't know this really from reading six biographies. Uh, She worked uh, at the Department of Censorship in the Ministry of Information in London during the war. Uh, So she was sitting up there, I imagine, rather like Winston in 1984, uh, deleting the news. That building was Senate House in Bloomsbury, which some of you may know is is still there today, and it is the building that Orwell took much later as the model for his Ministry of Truth, i.e. Ministry of Lies, in 1984, when he writes, you know, a character who sits there deleting the news. So that's what she was doing. She later took a job with the Ministry of Food. What was the kitchen front? <laughs> um, she hated her job in the Ministry of Censorship. Um, I imagine that they, uh, they thought with her Oxford degree and uh, her experience in propaganda in Spain that she was qualified for that. She left that and did... So she worked supporting... He was sort of jobbing, doing reviewing and things for small magazines while pursuing the secretaries and editors who worked in them um, and not earning enough money. So she then got another job at the Ministry of Food. The Ministry of Food was set up to work with the BBC and make radio broadcasts, broadcasting to the housewives of London how to healthily feed your family on the scarce provisions of wartime, which apparently included an, like, outrageous number of parsnips. <laughs> I don't know why. And think, esoteric things like dried cod and dried eggs and dried everything. And a meatless turkey. That was my favourite. <laughs> murky or something disgusting. Yes. <laughs> a murky. How to make Christmas dinner without the turkey. A murky. This was a job that Eileen absolutely loved. It suited her whimsy, her writing talent, her humour. She was writing and producing skits for actresses and actors who were clamouring to produce on them, uh, to to read and um, participate in them, and working with the BBC to get these things produced. And they made uh, a daily programme. It was broadcast, had five million listeners at one point. And... Today, if you look on the website of this show, it says that the Brit- Britons had never been healthier before or since. <laughs> all those parsnips. Um, all those parsnips. <laughs> but at the Ministry of Food, her very um, close friend there was a woman who later became a well-known novelist and was writing novels at the time, 
aptly named uh, working at the Ministry for Food, uh, Lettuce Cooper, <laughs> um, who also lived a very long life and never married and has left very lovely accounts of Eileen, both in her fiction and characters based on Eileen and uh, in her letters and accounts. Yeah. Did Eileen want children, Anna? Did she write about that? Eileen did want children, and for the first three years of her marriage, um, she suffered something, I think, at, that became endometriosis or possibly was endometriosis. It's terrible monthly bleeds. But her doctor said that she was still fertile and able to have children. For the first three years of, of her marriage, she um, did write to friends, like one friend she went to visit who was pregnant and who was going, who already had a child and didn't want another and was going to find, quote unquote, some sort of corrective, um, some sort of abortifacient or something at a, at a chemist. Whereas Eileen's period was late and she was rather hoping that it wouldn't come and that she might be pregnant. Orwell had considered himself sterile for many years. Um, that raised the question for me, if she is still hoping to be pregnant, when, if ever, did he tell her? that he thought that he was sterile, which is, a, you know, a shocking thing to imagine. How did a, a baby boy come into their lives? Um, in 1944, so during the war, um, a lot of British women, their husbands were off at the front and they were uh, sometimes pregnant to men, not their husbands, or visiting soldiers and so on. So their babies came up for adoption through Eileen's sister-in-law, Gwen's uh, obstetric and general practice. And she and Orwell adopted a baby boy called Richard, who is now a man in his late 70s called Richard Blair, with whom I've had the great pleasure of travelling in Barcelona and to the trenches where his father fought and so on. Um, so they, yes, had a very... Um, were absolutely overjoyed to adopt Richard in uh, 1944. What is obscured, again, uh, like so many things in the biographies, is that Orwell had kind of disappeared off into Europe to report on the end of the war, I think it was at that point, uh, retreat of troops or something, and Eileen had to go alone on public transport to the hospital to collect this baby, and then a year later, then also alone, front up to the court uh, to get the adoption through. So the biographers say very convoluted things like um, once the baby had entered the household <laughs> and things like that <laughs> in order to obscure who actually got this three-week-old into the household. <laughs> there was a lot going on uh, for Eileen at this period. Her beloved brother, the doctor, had been killed at the front. Her mum died not long after and she was increasingly unwell, anemic with all of this blood loss and tumours and and also caring for a new baby and and all well away. She, she's consulting with doctors about what sort of options there might be for her surgically. How does she talk about that about her illness and the prospect of having surgery when she writes about it to Orwell, who is, is off in Europe? Yes. So these six letters that I'm using, which date from, as I said, the beginning of the marriage to its end in 1945, um, they are funny, like I've just been talking about, but these last ones are much more tragic. Um, because she's ill and she and he's away and she's preparing for her own operation. And she 
She writes in a way that um, she would like Orwell to visit her and Richard, the baby. She would like him to visit her after the operation when she's convalescing, uh, but of course only if it suits him. And perhaps he might like to come and do some fishing or some shooting as well at the same time. And he's bored by the other children in the household. She's living with her sister-in-law, Gwen, who has small children as well. But they can be gotten rid of, so he wouldn't be bored by them. So she's concerned to continue to make the conditions for his enjoyment, um, even as he avoids any responsibility of care for him or for his child. I wonder, Anna, for you who had, you know, immersed yourself as deeply as you could in this woman and her life and her trials and humour and spirit and personality to come to these last letters where she is grappling with ill health and her her marriage is at the forefront of her mind how was it to you to read for you to read those letters I mean you're so invested in her by that stage I imagine what feeling did they leave you with those final what turn out to be the final letters of Eileen O'Shaughnessy I I was left with this feeling of um, enormous admiration, but also enormous sadness in a way. There's a kind of gallantry to the way she is trying to constantly make things easy and comfortable for him, even as she is the one who is facing a life-threatening operation. She's making her will. She's making jokes about making her will. She's kind of taking her own life and these risks rather lightly, as if, as women sometimes do, not to bother other people with our pain or her pain. And it made me think that really in patriarchy, which is where we all live as far as we know, there is no other place, (laughs) self-deprecation is a feminine virtue. And eventually it realises itself and it looks like a crime. How was Orwell told? <laughs> How was Orwell told what had happened to Eileen? So Orwell leaves. Um, he goes off to Europe knowing that his wife is extremely ill. She weighs 45 kilos. Uh, she has several uterine tumours. Uh, She has written to him saying, um, well, I think I should have the cheaper operation. Um, The London surgeons say I should go down there and have blood transfusions and be fattened up before the operation. I think really that's just because they're scared of their knives uh, themselves. So I'll just have it done here more cheaply um, and more quickly because these tumours are going to take longer and cost more anyway. If I, um, if I let them go on. So she's made more money than he has. She's supported both of them. But somehow it seems to be that she must defer to him in the spending of the money, even on saving her own life. He hears um, that that operation didn't work and uh, she dies on the table. She's 39 years old. Uh, when he is... The war is kind of really finishing. It's March 45 and he is in Paris amusing himself for a month. He stays there. Um, He borrows a a gun from Hemingway, 
because he's worried that the communists are still out to get him from Spain, which I don't think they were. If they were going to get anyone, it would have been her who knew more what was going on. Um, and then he goes to Cologne and he goes into some of the concentration camps and or past fields of, you know, prisoners of war, these German prisoners, and he's looking at the dregs of the war. And he's actually in a hospital in Cologne, I think, when he gets the news of her death and he is... Uh, I think he hasn't had a hemorrhage, but he's very ill. And he takes eight M&B tablets, which were these painkillers, and gets on a military plane and comes back to London and is in deep, deep shock, I think, at, at, at what has happened. And, you know, that is the, the tragic end of her story. Does Orwell write about her in, in his letters or, or his diaries after her death? No, not really. So he, you know, people have asked me, did he love her and did she love him? And I think they, I mean, he, he was enormously, almost um, unbelievably, pathologically unfaithful to her throughout the whole marriage with people he knew, he worked with, he barely knew, he met at parties, you know, in parks, uh, the, the, the biographers describe his behaviour as pouncing, a rather awful euphemism. Um, but he also wanted to make sure that uh, she knew that this was going on, particularly when he was doing it uh, to or with her friends, really as a way of isolating her from the support of those friends who were then wedged and felt that they had to keep a secret from Eileen and so on. So his behaviour was very isolating and controlling, even though I think there was some kind of love there. Um, and he knew that she had been unbelievably important in his work. Other people found that hard to see. So people who knew him very well, like his friend and editor Richard Rees, said after they got married... Um, uh, mysteriously, his work suddenly got much better, <laughs> much clearer uh, and less exaggerated and so on. And they had worked on Animal Farm together before she died during the war. He had wanted to write an essay critical of Stalin and she, having worked at the Department of Censorship and with her excellent political instincts and having been trained by Tolkien in allegory and fable and so on, said no one will publish an essay critical of Stalin at this point because he's helping us win the war, you know, and turned him to write a novel instead, which they worked on together night after night during the Blitz. When that was published, even Orwell's publisher, Fred Warburg, who knew Eileen very well, said, scratching his head, I imagine, ah, oh, we couldn't work it out. It was as if the writer of rather grey novels had suddenly taken wings and become a poet. <laughs> he missed her and he loved her, but he didn't, write, he didn't write about her and he said very awkward things to people after he, that shocked them after she died, like to Stephen Spender, um, oh, yes, my wife has died, she was a good old stick. We are nearly out of time, but just one final question, because I imagine it's something you've mused on during this whole process, is, you know, you began this book as such a fan of George Orwell's writing. How do you feel about his work now? 
I feel the work is wonderful. It's very important. We live in an age of blanket uh, surveillance and potential control and rising authoritarianisms and tyrannies everywhere. The work is enormously important and it is deeply enriched for me, in particular Animal Farm, because I know that it took two of them to make and I can hear her voice in Animal Farm and really enjoy it. Also, no author, me included, although I'm obviously not in an Orwell category, uh, is as good as their work. And to want an author somehow to be the hero genius who did it all alone, who we imagine them to be, is naive. And to want to sort of cancel them in any way is a kind of tyrannical thing, I think, that Orwell would have been appalled by. From that position, no art can come. So I think it's completely possible to hold the man and the wife, the work and the life in mind at the same time and enjoy all of it. Please join me in thanking Anna And that conversation with Anna Funder was recorded at the Byron Writers' Festival. And thanks to all the sound ops who made that possible, especially the ABC's own Steve Fieldhouse. Anna's book is called Wifedom. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here from Earshot. And in the latest episode in our Remember Me series, producer Zoe Ferguson interrogates her memories of her late father, Greg. I sit there. Tuning into memories of him. (laughs) What are my memories of Dad? Am I actually remembering something real? Or just creating a memory from an old photo? Seeing a loved one lose the battle against the bottle is hard. And it can be particularly tough for their children. Like, why are you choosing booze instead of your family? Ah, well, good question. I'm worried about you. Is it genetic? We might store things that haunt us. The bits we inherit from our parents. The parts that we're not quite sure belong there. That's Ghost in the Machine. Just look for us on the ABC Listen app.